welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. The only difference with adults and kids, the important thing to remember, children who have seizure disorders often are taking anticonvulsant medication. And because their drug doses are based on their size and their weight, they get a certain dose and then they grow. So then they sometimes they outgrow their dose. And what happens is then they're, you know, all of these anticonvulsant medications, you have to maintain a therapeutic level. In fact, I have a list here of all the most common drugs and their therapeutic levels on page 25. So if you have um, outgrown your dose, what do you think is going to happen to the therapeutic level? That's right, it's going to drop. If your therapeutic level is low, do you think you could have a seizure? Absolutely. So oftentimes with children, if they start having seizures, it's an indication that their drug dose needs to be adjusted. Um, Long-term or side effects of these drugs, CNS depressants. You're pretty safe in choosing that as an answer. That's what they do. They're CNS depressants. Okay, so you're going to have CNS depression. Um, Dilantin is the only one that has some very special little tricks to it. Dilantin is one drug that cannot be given with dextrose. It has to be administered only with normal saline. You cannot mix this in D5W if you're giving it IV. You have to give it with normal saline, otherwise it crystallizes. Also, liquid dilantin needs to be kept in a dark bottle. It cannot be exposed to sunlight or light. Dilantin. And the other thing about dilantin, because it causes gingival hyperplasia, Patients who are on Dilantin need to be sure to go for regular dental care. Dental care for these patients is critical because they sometimes end up with gum disease from the gingival hyperplasia. And if you really know your drug's really good, when you meet somebody in the street with gingival hyperplasia, you know they're on Dilantin. You can diagnose people. You can even diagnose people after a while. Um, Cerebral palsy, they're not going to ask you any questions on, I don't think. Um, Basically, cerebral palsy is just another word for brain damage. And it's usually brain damage caused by anoxia. Okay, it's usually children who have not gotten enough oxygen either in utero or during a delivery or even young children who've drowned, you know, children who've been submerged in water, and it causes irreversible brain damage. How many minutes does it take of anoxia before you have irreversible brain damage? four to six minutes and you have irreversible brain damage. Children who have cerebral palsy are going to have delayed skills, abnormal motor function, abnormal muscle tone. Um, the only, they're not going to ask you any questions. The most important thing to know about when you're caring for these patients is uh, the long-term care. You want to just try to get them to function at their optimal level, whatever that is. You have to really decide based on the scenario that they give you. One of their biggest problems, because they have a lot of motor issues, is um, sucking, swallowing, and chewing. So they're also high risk for aspiration. Okay, kids with CP or adults with CP are high risk for aspiration. That's probably their biggest risk. They're also at greater risk, which I didn't mention this morning, but children with chronic illnesses are at greater risk for being abused than healthy children. Because children with chronic illnesses require a lot more care and patience from the caregiver. And sometimes it can be very frustrating when you're feeding a child 
who's having difficulty eating and you have to keep cleaning up the same mess over and over. And children who have chronic illnesses are at a higher risk for abuse, particularly these kind of kids with these kind of problems, motor delayed kids. Um, Down syndrome, what will they ask you? Probably nothing. Down syndrome um, is a abnormality of chromosome number 21. It's also known as trisomy 21. Basically, kids with Down syndrome look more like each other than they look like themselves, I mean, than their families. They have a transverse simian palmar crease, literally a big line across their hands. They usually have a large protruding tongue. They're very hypotonic. They're kind of floppy, even as infants. They have an inner epicanthial fold that makes their eyes look more similar to each other than to their families. A lot of kids with Downs have congenital heart defects, particularly I think they have ASDs. That's their most common defect. Delayed growth and development, mental retardation. Um, what will they ask you? You know what, the, the only thing I think that they could even discuss is long-term care. Basically, long-term goals for these patients is independence with ADLs, optimal level of function. They usually manage to um, take care of their own activities of daily living. They can bathe. They can prepare meals. They can go shop and buy food. Um, usually, they can do those things. They often can hold simple jobs. They can even be actors on television. There's a program. Well, it's not on anymore. But there was a television program where the main actor was a boy with Down syndrome. Um, Down syndrome is more common in the older and the younger parents, like the mother, if the mother's very young or the mother's very old. Anybody who's at the you know, end of any spectrum is always at higher risk for whatever problem. Um, lead poisoning. Lead poisoning is interesting. What happens here is the child acquires an excessive accumulation of lead in their blood, usually because they eat lead paint chips that have lead, or they inhale lead particles from their parents' clothing if the parents work with a lot of dust from uh, construction areas. Children who have pica, pica is the craving for non-food substances, are at greater risk. And children who are iron deficient are more likely to absorb lead. Iron deficiency, because what happens is when your blood cell is missing iron, it has an open space and lead fits right in that same space on the blood cell. So children who are iron deficient are more likely to become lead exposed. Lead affects the hematological system, the renal system, and the neurological system. Basically, it causes anemia. It can cause renal failure. And it can cause brain damage starting with behavioral changes, working all the way up to death and coma. Okay, so a lot of times we think that the child with learning disabilities is just a child with learning disabilities, but then we find out that they're actually lead poisoned. Um, what are they gonna ask you? Hmm. They might ask about treatment. The most important step in treating the patient with lead poisoning is removing the source of the lead. If you give them medicine and you get the lead out of their system and you send them back home to the same environment where they're getting lead, you haven't really treated them. So removing the source is the number one important step in treatment. And after that, we do something called chelation therapy where the child takes um, a medication which 
removes the lead from the blood. These are the drugs that are commonly used. The most commonly used drug that I see is Susimer, which is a PO medication. And then there's something called calcium disodium EDTA, which is either given IV or IM. And the other two are not given as often. Um, the ones that are given IV or IM, well, IM, you have to make sure that you rotate the injection sites. Okay, anybody who's getting frequent injections, whether it be IM or sub-Q, always rotate the injection sites if you want better absorption. Make sure the child is on a high iron diet because when they're getting lead removed from their blood, lead and iron will, also, iron will be pulled out along with lead. So sometimes after this type of chelation therapy, they have low iron also. So you want to replace iron. Um, and the other thing, when they're being chelated, you can actually see the lead coming out in the urine. The urine will be a rusty color. The urine of a patient who's on chelation therapy for lead poisoning will have rusty colored urine. And that's one of the ways you know that, they're, that the lead is coming out of their system. And that's all they're going to ask you. They'll probably ask about the chelation therapy. They might ask about the urine. And they might ask about keeping the environment free from lead. Um, you can also get lead in the water. Old pipes have lead. So children who live in homes where there's lead exposure in the water, if you buy those filters, those water filters, they usually filter out lead. lead then the child can stay in the home. People who live in old houses, a lot of, even, this is not an economic issue, because children who live in older homes, sometimes people buy these really old farmhouses because they want to refurbish them, and they're full of lead too. So lead poisoning is everywhere. I think if the home is older than, uh, I think it's about uh, maybe 30, 40 years, there's a chance that there's lead in there because lead-based paint was very common in those days. Children with musculoskeletal problems, these also can be congenital, meaning that you're born with them or acquired, getting them later on. If they're fixed early, we can prevent long-term disabilities. One of the more common types of congenital orthopedic problems is the congenital hip dysplasia or congenital hip dislocation. What happens here is the head of the femur, okay, the top of the thigh, the head of the femur is displaced from the acetabulum. In other words, the socket, the hip joint, the hip is not completely, or the head of the femur is not completely in the hip joint. There's a ligament that holds the head of your femur inside of your hip joint. There's actually a little ligament, almost like a little rubber band. Sometimes when a baby is born, this ligament is stretched out. And so the joint, so that the head of the femur sits outside of the joint slightly. And it's not tight enough, it can't, it doesn't pull it in. And this is where you get congenital hip dysplasia. When you see a baby with congenital hip dysplasia, it's usually pretty obvious. I didn't mention it yesterday, but one of the things that's usually checked in the newborn nursery is for congenital hip. And there's several ways you can do it. You can take the legs and rotate them in an abducted position, away from the body, rotating them. And if it clicks, that is usually a sign of congenital hip. This is called the ortolani click, ortolani click, because when you roll it around, you're actually hearing the bone grinding against the uh, joint. Another very common way to evaluate whether or not the hip is dislocated, if you put the baby 
on his belly and you pull his legs straight down, straight out, you will look at the gluteal folds, the little folds in his legs. They should be equal. If they are asymmetrical, like the picture in the handout, that's a sign of a congenital hip dysplasia. So you should, normal babies have symmetrical gluteal folds. Babies with hip dysplasia have asymmetrical gluteal folds. Um, some of the other signs, the Galazi sign. The Galazi sign is when you have one knee that's higher than the other. Basically, you have one leg that's longer than the other. Okay, the affected leg is the shorter one, or the shorter leg is the affected one. The leg with the hip dysplasia is the one that's shorter. And usually, if it's not corrected, children with this, as they grow, they're going to have an altered gait. They're going to limp. This Trendelenburg gait is a limp. In the old days, they used to make special shoes where one shoe had a much higher heel than the other to kind of balance it out. But now we try to actually put the hip socket right back in the joint. And the way that we do this, we usually do this with an immobilization device. Um, we can use a Pavlik harness. They don't ask you about that. You can use an abduction brace. They don't ask you about that. They ask you about Brian's traction. This is a, also one of the board favorites. See, she's shaking her head. See, I know the test. They ask you about Brian's traction. You have a picture of a baby there laying in Brian's traction. It's the most ridiculous looking contraption you've ever seen. But for some reason, the boards think it works great. Most kids who really have congenital hip do not go in Brian's traction. But on the boards, they do. So that's how you're going to answer it. In Brian's traction, what they ask you is the position. The position is the legs are at a 90 degree angle to the bed. You see the legs at a 90 degree angle? OK. If they say a right angle, do you all know that a right angle is a 90 degree angle? Some people answer the question wrong because they don't know the terminology. They know what it is, but they don't know the word. So it's an, either a 90 degree angle or a right angle to the bed. The buttocks are slightly elevated. This is used in, for a child that weighs less than 30 pounds. Bigger children have to have some other kind of treatment. And the weights should always hang freely. The child's body is the counter-traction. Okay. Can you remove Brian's traction? Can the nurse remove Brian's traction? Yes. Yes, you can. It's skin traction. And you cannot really hurt the patient if you have to take it off. In fact, it's usually off an hour a day to bathe and give the child some mobility. Okay. Can the nurse remove skeletal traction? No. What happens if the patient in skeletal traction is having a problem? What will you do? Chart it, tell the head nurse, or call the doctor? Right, you're going to call the doctor. Anybody who's got problems, because you can be dealing with circulation problems when you're talking about traction. Any immobilization device needs immediate attention. Um, and so that's what you're going to know about Brian's traction. The biggest problem with Brian's traction is circulation to the lower extremities. Your feet, did you ever raise your hand for like 10 minutes while you're waiting to be called on? What happens after five minutes of your hand being up in the air? It starts to get numb, right? A little numb and tingly. How come? Circulation. Circulation is going against gravity. Imagine you have your feet up in the air for 23 hours. What kind of circulatory issues you could have? So you need to assess 
circulation in these patients. This, the number one assessment in this is circulation. You may also find a child in a hip spica cast. You see the picture of the baby in the big cast there? A hip spica cast covers, basically it's used for either congenital hip dysplasia, and it's also used for fractured femurs. Fractured femur is a common injury, more so in children who can walk. You gotta really be walking to fracture your femur. You can't get a fractured femur laying down. Um, when you're talking about the spica cast, um, it's important, or any kind of cast, you always need to do also neurovascular checks. You need to make sure what we just talked about, circulatory status is stable. Because anytime somebody's in any kind of a cast or any kind of traction, they're immobile. And immobilization can cause problems with circulation and neurofunction. Um, we pedal the edges of a cast. Everybody knows how to pedal the edges of a cast. Pedaling means you take some tape and you put it over the edge of the cast to make it smooth around the edge because the edge of the cast can actually irritate the skin. Um, anybody who's got a hip spike a cast that goes all the way up to their chest, you have to be concerned about their ability to breathe. Yeah, the nurse can do the pedaling of the cast, yes. Um, oh, if you're gonna be handling a cast, first of all, when a cast is drying, the old plaster casts, they feel hot. Okay, so if the cast itself feels warm, that's okay. All right, if there's a hot spot on a cast, like the cast is totally dry and then you touch the child's knee area and it feels very hot there, that might be a sign of something cooking underneath. But generally speaking, when the cast is drying, the cast usually feels warm. If you're gonna handle a cast that's drying, always with the palm of your hand. Never pick a cast up with your fingers. Always lift it flat, because if you indent it, you're gonna alter the position of it. And if they ask you about itching, the best way to alleviate itching in a cast is blow cool air into it. Okay, you can use a blow dryer that can blow cool air. Blowing cool air is the best way to stop the itching. Don't stick a hanger down there and scratch. Don't put baby powder in it, okay, because all of those things are gonna just complicate the situation. Um, on the next page, we have clubfoot. Clubfoot is usually caused by positioning in utero. What happens is clubfoot is really um, a contracture. That's what it is. It's nothing more than a contracture. The baby's position in utero had their foot in a position that caused it to be in, in a contracture. And so when the baby's born, what they try to do is they try to release the contracture. We usually do it with the only thing you need to know about this, serial casting. And what they do is they take the child's foot and they move it a little bit and they cast it like that. And then after a couple of weeks, they move it again and they cast it again. And they keep moving it and casting it until they, can, until they loosen up the contracture. But it usually is a contracture. It's tight on the inside and loose on the outside. Or it depends which way the foot is clubbed. Um, the only thing you need to know is these kids are gonna have delayed walking. If they ask you about, you know, what's gonna be the uh, developmental delay here, walking, because they're gonna be in a cast for several months. And the parents need to be taught cast care. Teach cast care to the parents. They won't ask anything else. Scoliosis. Scoliosis is a lateral curvature of the spine. It affects the thoracic area and it can cause body image disturbance. And if it's really bad, it can be, cause respiratory compromise or cardiac impairment if you're really you know, bent over. 
Um, what are they going to ask you? Usually, how do you know if the patient has scoliosis? First sign, first of all, it usually is noted during the adolescent growth spurt. It's diagnosed most often during the adolescent growth spurt. This is one of the ones that's more common in girls than boys. One of the few. More common with girls. Usually what happens is the kid looks like one side of the body is higher up than the other. You have an asymmetrical hemline, asymmetrical shoulder length, uh, height, unequal leg lengths, and they usually have greater than five degree deviation on a scoliometer. A scoliometer is an interesting little thing. It's, you know what, it's just like a carpenter's level. Have you ever seen a level that a carpenter uses when they want to see if something is flat? It's a little, it looks like a ruler, but it has a little bubble of, of water in the center. And if it's flat, the bubble lays centered. And if it's off to one side, the bubble goes to one side. Well, this works the same way, only you have the child bend forward, standing up, bending forward, and you rest this little scoliometer, or this little level on their back and there's a little bubble of water in the center. And if it stays in the center, then the sides are equal. If it shifts to one side or the other, then it's that many degrees of a deviation. Okay, and that's how it works. It's a very good little device. Um, what do we do with this? Well, we start off by trying to get them to do exercises. Well, how many scoliosis cases do you think are cured with exercise? None. Okay, so then we try to get them to wear a brace that's going to try to reposition their body alignment. Here is a picture of the brace. How many 15-year-old girls do you know that would be happy to wear this thing out on a Saturday night? Okay, this must be worn 23 hours a day. How successful do you think this brace is? Not successful. So we go for the surgical procedures. They can do either what they call a Harrington rod, that's the old procedure, or they do these CD rods now, which is the newer procedure. Basically what they're going to do is stabilize the vertebrae with a rod, either one on the side or two, one on each side. The CD rods are two rods that go one on each side of the vertebrae. And then what they do is they stabilize the vertebrae up against the rods so it actually aligns them and they no longer are off to one side or the other. And it works fine. Um, the patient comes back from the OR, and most important, it's you need to maintain good body alignment. And we usually have to log roll these patients. Everybody knows how to do log rolling? Okay. And you log roll them, and they need neurovascular checks. Neurovascular checks means, do you have circulation to your extremities, and can you feel me touching you? Okay. That's neurovascular. And usually once they're fine, you know, once they've recovered from the surgery, they're fine and they usually go on to have a normal life without any kind of disturbances. And they, that's probably all they'll ask you. Body alignment is very, body alignment and body image. Body image also is an issue here because these are usually teenagers. If they ask you when would you suggest to the family to schedule this kind of a surgery, when would you have a family schedule this surgery? They should do it during the Christmas, uh, either, no, they should do this during the summer vacation because when this child is out of school, you don't want to do this a week before finals, okay? Because usually this requires several weeks of recovery, so we usually try to do this kind of surgery when the child is not in school. So elective surgeries like this should be done during the summer. On communicable diseases, they don't ask too many questions about this, thank God. 
Um, I just covered a few of the more important ones. They occasionally they throw in some weird rash like Fifth's disease and, you know, most of these communicable diseases are going to give you some sort of a skin rash. They're communicable usually by droplet or respiratory. So basically, if you're breathing around somebody who has them, you're going to be exposed. Okay, so, I mean, generally, you can answer almost all the questions the same way about communicable diseases. Um, chicken pox, one of the more common ones, because we still are not immunizing everybody, is spread by respiratory and direct contact with the lesions. Chicken pox take about two weeks to erupt from the time of exposure. They're usually communicable one day before the lesions erupt, up to six days after, or, in when, or when crusts have formed. You're, in other words, you're communicable until you have crusted lesions all over. Okay, because what happens with chickenpox, they start off as a little vesicle, and then they turn into little crusty vesicles, and they become crusty before they go away. So when they're all crusty, you're no longer contagious. So technically, can the child go back to school when he's all crusted? Yes. Will the teacher let him? Probably not. There's usually no, there's nothing you can do about it anyway, because if you're exposed, if I'm in the room with all of you right now, and one of you breaks out in chickenpox tomorrow, we've all been exposed. So that's the problem with exposure. So if a mother calls you and says, my three-year-old just came down with chickenpox yesterday, I don't want my 10-month-old to catch it, what are you going to tell the mother to do? You're, you have to observe for chicken pox in the next two weeks because your child has already been exposed. Okay? Um, the big problem with chicken pox really is the discomfort from the lesions. They're very itchy and children tend to scratch them. And sometimes they get secondary bacterial infections from scratching with dirty little fingernails. So it's important during the episode of chickenpox for the parent to keep the child's hands clean and the fingernails short. Um, some children, not too many, thank God, develop serious complications with chickenpox, which can um, develop into an encephalitis or Rye syndrome, and this is where we avoid giving aspirin. Children with chickenpox don't get aspirin. If they have fever, they can have Tylenol. Chicken, children with chickenpox can take Tylenol. Um, chickenpox, sometimes they ask you where does it start, what does it look like. Chickenpox starts on the trunk of the body, usually with few lesions, like maybe three or four the first day, and then the child doesn't feel so great, and the next day the lesions start to spread. Okay. Measles, on the other hand, uh, also spread by respiratory, also takes about two to three weeks to break out, is also communicable before it, the rash appears. The difference with measles is, first of all, during the uh, prodromal pre stage, they usually have a cough and sort of a cold and runny eyes and conjunctivitis, and they get these things called coplic spots, which are literally red spots inside their buccal mucosa in the cheeks, inside the cheeks they have these like red spots. And then they get the rash. The rash usually starts on the face. It's usually bright red and it usually is connected. It's more what we call confluent. It's like, it looks continuous. Whereas chickenpox is individual little bumps. This looks like a continuous rash. Starts on the face. It's more blotchy looking. Starts on the face and goes down down the body. 
Um, basically, there's no treatment for this either. It's viral. We just try to make the child feel good. Um, sometimes they complain of photophobia and their eyes get sticky and uncomfortable, so we try to make sure that they don't um, get exposed to too much light and just keep the eyelids clean. We don't see too many kids in this country with chicken, with um, measles because we give MMR vaccine. But we do see children who've come from other countries with measles because they don't get MMR vaccine all over the world. Um, it can be complicated by having otitis media or pneumonia or bronchiolitis. It often causes respiratory problems. Mumps, they're never going to ask you about. Never. Two weeks for mumps, it causes um, para paratitis, and um, they're never going to ask you about it. Rubella, which is also known as German measles, is really very benign to the person who has it. The big problem with rubella is um, exposure to unborn fetuses. So really the only thing to worry about with rubella, rubella is um, if the woman is pregnant, or the mother of the child is pregnant, or is going to visit somebody whose child has, a pregnant woman should not be visiting anybody with rheumatic fever. Um, if you're talking about assignments for nurses and, you know, communicable diseases and things like that, nurses really can, the only patients that nurses really should not really take care of are patients with communicable diseases such as these. Pregnant women should not take care of any child with any one of these communicable diseases. Can you take care of somebody with AIDS? Yes. Can you take care of somebody with um, immunosuppression? Yes. Can a pregnant woman take care of a patient with, I don't know, give me another one. TB, yes, they can. Um, you just, you really can't take care of patients who have communicable diseases because this causes the most problems for the fetus. Uh, let's just finish up. Let's talk about the child with AIDS a little bit, okay? Um, children with AIDS are like adults with AIDS in the sense that the disease process works the same way. Children with AIDS go under the category of immunosuppression. Don't get thrown off on the exam when they say HIV. When they throw a patient at you with HIV, they're saying immunosuppression. You're going to automatically plan care for that patient with immunosuppression. Forget about worrying about the word AIDS, HIV. You know, that's like, we did, we're finished with that about 15, 16 years ago. Okay, people with this particular infection ha have serious immunosuppressive um, problems, and that's the way you will approach the patient as the nurse. Okay, so you need to worry about the patient's immune status. Children with AIDS also one of their other issues is they developmentally delay and they developmentally regress. So developmental assessment is something you would do with the child with AIDS that you don't necessarily have to do with the adult with AIDS. Because children with AIDS tend to, if they have neurological involvement, they, all, they often will developmentally regress. Um, the other thing about children with AIDS, the diff, one of the fundamental differences is children, almost probably 95% of children who have AIDS have actually acquired the disease through what we call vertical transmission. Do you know what vertical means? It means down, mother down to baby, as opposed to horizontal, laying next to somebody. All right. 
So ba children really acquire this disease from their mother, which means that their mother also has the disease, which oftentimes means that their father also has the disease, which oftentimes means that so do their siblings. So when you're looking at children with this disease, you're often looking at an entire family who has a disease. So this is a family disease now. It's not a patient disease. And so that's one of the other components when you're dealing with children that's not necessarily uh, a problem or an issue when you're dealing with adults. Not always. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, I can't think of what else they would ask you. Treat the patient as immunosuppressed when they ask AIDS questions. Okay? Immunosuppression is your big, big problem. What drugs do they take? The same as the adults. I can't think of anything that they would ask you that you wouldn't be able to answer just knowing immunosuppression in general. Um, usually the cause of death is usually respiratory. They usually end up with respiratory infections that are untreatable. Most of them are really doing well. They, they, you know, the treatment for pediatric AIDS is, has advanced so significantly that children with AIDS are living way into their teenage years. Okay. One of the big problems with children with AIDS is disclosure. I don't think they'll ask you on the boards, but you know, who do you tell, when do you tell, how do you tell? Okay? With adults, that's not always so much of an issue. But you have a seven-year-old who's going to public school. If you tell his teacher that he has AIDS, there's going to be big problems in that classroom. So this is the big problem with kids, more so than with adults. Lots of kids with AIDS go to public school. Nobody knows it because they won't tell anybody, because they know what kind of hysteria and inappropriate reactions that they're going to receive. So it's funny because I ask people all the time, you know, people who work in schools, are there any children in your school with AIDS? And they tell me no. I say, oh, yes, there are. You know? So this is the big problem with children because, you know, oh, and back a little bit with chronic illnesses. One of the teaching, um, important teaching things when you have a patient with chronic illnesses, seizure disorders, hemophilia, sickle cell disease, um, cystic fibrosis, anything chronic, one of the important things particularly for children, they should have medic alert bracelets. Anybody with a chronic illness should have something on their body at all times that says that they have this disease, diabetes, because if they lose consciousness, if they're injured in an accident, the, uh, the people who respond need to know that maybe this is a diabetic coma, okay? Maybe this child is stroking out from sickle cell disease. So it's important, anybody with chronic illness should wear a medic alert bracelet. The problem is children with AIDS are not going to wear a medic alert bracelet. And basically, I don't think they're going to ask you too many pediatric AIDS questions, but if they do, answer them like you're answering immunosuppression. Attention deficit disorder is on your last page there. Um, I'm not going to go into too much excessive detail um, because I think you will discuss some of it when you discuss the psych piece, but attention deficit disorder is really just a catch-all term for somebody who really can't sit still and pay attention. Personally, I think a lot of it has to do with too much stimulation, but it's become a medical diagnosis that is now treatable with medication. So we're going to take it from that perspective. Okay? Children who have attention deficit disorder have difficulty concentrating, have difficulty following through on projects, and um, can be disruptive in school. And so one of the things that we, the medical profession has decided to do is treat them with medication. Um, the certain things you need to know about the medication. The medication that they take is a form of a stimulant. It's actually a stimulant. 
for some reason, what it does is it makes them, it doesn't calm them down. It helps them focus. It gives them a better focus. It's a stimulant. Uh-huh. All the medications that are given to children with attention deficit disorder are stimulants. They're CNS stimulants. So if you're taking a stimulant, they're similar to amphetamines. And so if you're taking these kind of medications, what are the side effects? Weight loss, appetite suppression, and insomnia. Real nice, right? So children who are taking medication for attention deficit disorder should be given the medication in the morning. They should definitely take their medicine in the morning. And they also need to be monitored for weight loss because they tend to have problems with weight loss because they're taking amphetamines. And one of the other things that you need to know about the attention deficit disorder, in order to get the child to cooperate better, one of the best things to do is to limit distractions. You really need to limit distractions. That's the problem with these kids. They need, they have, there's too, they can't handle too much stimulation at the same time. So they function better with less distractions. Okay, so if you're the parent, and I think I have a question there. Let me, you know, they give you a scenario where they're telling you that you have a kid with ADHD who's very disruptive and what should you do? And remember how we talked earlier about setting limits and limit setting is a good thing? That works for all kids except these kids. These kids don't really need limit setting. They need limited distractions because the problem with them is they're all over the place and they can't focus on anything. So if they limit some of the distractions, they tend to do much better. So pick limiting their distractions. Okay, these children need help with focusing. That's their big problem. They can't focus. You have completed the pediatric nursing section. Please move to the next section of the lecture series, which is psychiatric nursing. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.